In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today's scripture is from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 26, NIV Bible. Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once, one month more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, 
I am he. This is the word of the Lord. The reflection this morning, which will eventually lead us to celebrating the Lord's table in a few moments from now, is following along on our theme on the nature of Christian worship. Today we're looking at worship in spirit and in truth. And so we go to a text where Jesus actually used that phrase about worshiping in spirit and truth. As we get into this slowly and gently, there are a couple of quotes that I want to begin with. One is a repeat of the one that Nick shared at the top of your bulletin, which is a quote which speaks about worship, speaks about the relationship and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and Jesus, and also is a wonderful way to introduce this relationship between Jesus and the Samaritan woman he meets at Jacob's well. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, as it has always been, is to make Jesus and all that God has given us in Jesus present to us, and to make us in all of our humble and naked folly and need but also in our faith and longing present to Jesus. It seems to be a Holy Spirit moment taking place between Jesus and the woman. Jesus coming to the woman and the woman also being given the gift of Jesus in her need and her longing. Another quote from this Scottish theologian, James B. Torrance, which is gaining incredible um, reputation in church says this about worship. Worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. Worship is the gift of participating through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's communion with the Father. And so we see right off the top that worship is a gift. It's not something at the core that depends upon our abilities. It's a reality which precedes us and into which we are actually invited to participate. This communion, this friendship, this intimacy of the Father and the Son. When we're invited through the Holy Spirit to enter into that precious relationship, that leads us to the experience of worship. Worship, therefore, is something which takes place everywhere, but it's experienced in and directed into the very life of God. This is kind of a shift in our thinking about worship. And so it's no surprise that when Jesus teaches the nature of worship as being rooted in spirit and in truth, that he blows the Samaritan woman's mind away, taking her way beyond her set of assumptions about how human beings worship God and especially where they worship God. The text this morning is one of those examples of the glorious, magnificently multi-layered way of John's gospel. So much going on all it seems at the same time 
and take some time for us to grasp. And so let's just take some simple ways of getting in. The text is a story that reveals a transforming conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. It takes place at Jacob's well in what some people see as a kind of a reenactment of Jacob's own wedding generations earlier. In this conversation, Jesus is revealed as both human and divine. He is, he is on the one hand tired and thirsty, in need of rest and real water, but he also displays an intimate, detailed knowledge of this woman's past and present personal life, even though she comes to him as a perfect stranger. Only God, we are led to understand, has this kind of insight into the human life and the human story of a person. In the conversation, Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, the promised one of God. And the backdrop of the story, just as Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah, is that Jews and Samaritans are bitter enemies who have been divided for decades along two historic and theological differences. One, they rely on different versions of the Old Testament because those versions that they have adopted tell the story of their lives and of their God according to their own desires and beliefs. And secondly, and significantly in this passage, they differ on where the central place the physical place, the historic place of worshiping God is. For Samaritans, it's Mount Gezerim in Samaria. For Jews, it's Jerusalem. And the Samaritan woman later on in the conversation makes a reference to that. These are two kind of narratives on a single story, two kinds of interpretations. What's going on with Jews and Samaritans is kind of the difference in how French Canadians historically might tell the story of Canada and how English Canadians might tell the story of Canada. Or the difference between how Eastern Canadians might tell the story of Canada and how Western Canadians might tell the story of Canada. It also might be parallel to how different the narratives would be between historically sensitive white Southerners and a black community ancestored in slavery. But these two tensions, these two stories, provide the context for this unlikely conversation. And to note that most Jews didn't travel through Samaria. It's well understood that making their way between Galilee and Judea, most Jews went around Samaria so that they did not have to interact in any way with their enemies. But Jesus, it seems, in his journey, goes straight through the heart of Samaria and actually gets off the highway and takes some time at the rest stop. And it looks like he is in no great hurry open to receiving his water and his rest from whoever is around to offer it without distinction and without prejudice. In this conversation, Jesus reveals himself as the living water, which quenches people's thirst forever. 
This phrase, the living water, could be translated flowing water or fresh water, and it's different than the more stagnant water that would be found in Jacob's well. Jesus gets the woman's attention because of his language here, because he associates himself with this imagery of fresh and flowing water. And this imagery of fresh and flowing water, if you couple together the witness of Jeremiah and the witness of Isaiah, this imagery of, is the imagery of the quenching word of Scripture, and it's the imagery of the quenching ministry of the Spirit. Overall, what Jesus' speech with the Samaritan woman does is reveals him as God's saving revelation to people. When Jesus reveals that he is familiar with the immoral character of the woman's personal life, things begin to change in the conversation. The woman becomes somewhat uncomfortable and she begins to practice a strategy that we often practice when we get uncomfortable in deep relationships. She practices a strategy of deflection and avoidance. She changes the topic. And out of the blue, seemingly, she introduces the topic about the place of worship. You Jews, we Samaritans believe that the place to worship God is on this mountain. And you Jews believe that place to worship God is in the holy city of Jerusalem. It's pretty obvious in the train of the conversation that she's trying to change the topic, to get this person on to another direction. Pastor Paul Lewis Metzger says this about the woman's avoidance strategy. Perhaps the woman hides behind the folklore Because although she has unquenchable thirst for love, she can barely stand before the overwhelming sensation of Jesus probing personal care and attention that hits her like a mighty river flowing down through a mountain range. It would be so much easier for her and for us if religion could be released to worshiping on this or that mountain. It is so upsetting, Betzker writes, when worshiping on mountains gives way to sharing personal space with the Messiah, connecting person to person, heart to heart. Jesus looks her in the eye and he treats her like a human being. Jesus' probing gaze is at once the most difficult, frustrating, powerful, heart-gripping, and beautiful thing that she has ever experienced, and she doesn't know how to respond. The best option for her is to hide until she can hide no more, and the woman moves from hiding behind some mountain to hiding behind her hope in some distant future, the Messiah. Just as Jesus closes in, in his ministry of love, the woman tries to move away. There's something about being known intimately and deeply that at once attracts us and also repels us. But Jesus responds to her strategy by following through with the conversation. He plays the conversation with her 
and he talks about worship indeed being important, and he talks about a time when Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim won't matter anymore, and he actually says that time is now, and he says that instead, the key about worship is to worship God in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit, to make something very, very complicated, really, and at least detailed and multi-layered, more simple, is to worship God for who God is. God is spirit. There's not a location for God, historic or otherwise. God transcends any attempts of human beings to kind of place God at a particular time in a particular way for a particular purpose. To worship God in truth is to experience God in the way that God is meant to be experienced, which in this context means through Jesus. Because you'll recall that the Apostle John, who's writing this gospel, for the Apostle John, Jesus is the way and the truth. So any reference to the truth in John's imagination is pointing to Jesus, who is God's Messiah. To worship in spirit and in truth is directly and can't be separated from the person of Jesus in Jesus' own teaching and in John's imagination. Not only does Jesus offer eternal life through the living water of the spirit, but through the same spirit, he also makes it possible for a true living encounter with God. When Jesus looks the Samaritan woman in the eye, she can't hide. And he treats her actually and already allows her to experience the God of spirit and in truth. He not only teaches about worshiping God in spirit and truth, he deals with her in spirit and in truth. The authenticity that God desires in worship is the same direct authenticity that Jesus activates in this conversation with the woman. She's already getting a foretaste of what it means to worship God in spirit and truth because Jesus invites her into a spirit and truth conversation. The same kind of spirit and truth conversation that at once attracts us and also repels us. In order to land this conversation and this text and the Samaritan's woman's strategy of avoidance, into our lives, into our spiritualities, into our relationship with God. Let's think just for a second. Let's just name for a few minutes some of these ways in which we are on the other side of authentic worship. One way that we avoid authentic worship is by assuming that true worship is our way of worship or somebody else's particular way of worship. Another way is to assume that true worship is 
something of a duty and obligation, something that we do instead of a gift, which is made possible by God in the love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Another still is entering and participating in worship and assuming that you know what it's all about. Living on the surface without being open legitimately. Think for a second in this story about the backdrop. The Samaritan woman gets up. She goes about her day. She ends up at the well. Something that she would have done every day for the sake of her family. And in a conversation that she never in her wildest imagination dreamed about having, she meets the Messiah. She meets the chosen one of God who invites her into a closer relationship. I wonder if there could be a parallel to help us think about our need to be open, to be surprised by God, not only in any given moment, but it's particularly because the text is talking about worshiping in spirit and truth. I wonder what it would look like for us to be a community that would not only come to this place, but our other expressions of worship and be open to being surprised, to be open to be something new. Marilee Adams, the best-selling author in her wonderful book, Change Your Questions, Change Your Life, talks about two modes of questions, really two personality types entering into new experiences, new conversations, and new relationships. She talks about the judger motif and the learner motif. And I wonder if many of us are stuck in the judger motif where we already think that we know what we're going to experience. We already know what we think. And that all we do when we're together in any conversation or any service or any encounter is we judge it in relationship to what we already know instead of being open with anticipation that something new could actually emerge. The woman had no idea who she was meeting at the well. You have no idea who the people that you meet every day in your office or along the journey of your work are. But how open we are that something good and beautiful and important could be going on in the encounter that we have with an individual stranger or a new group of people or even the community that, to which we belong. Suspicion versus anticipation is the choice that we have in authentic worship. And another final point on this way in which we seem to be suspicious or seem not to be open to worship is that we often think that worship is about something other than Jesus Christ. We have in many ways made worship about our desires about our dreams, about our preferences, and even about our best developed ideas. When at the center of worship, a spirit and truth worship is the figure of Jesus, who was born, who lived, who died, who rose again, who sits at the right hand of God the Father praying for us, and who is coming again to bring God's kingdom in its fullness. 
Because of John's gospel and this multi-layered way of coming to any particular text, because of John's use of imagery, one possible way to think about applying this word to us this morning is, is to think about it in various different ways. The first is, and this leads us to the next part of our service, is communion. At the center of spirit and truth worship is the table, the center of Christian worship, where we come face to face with the suffering Jesus. We're actually invited to remember him, not to avoid him, not to deflect the conversation, not to think about something else, but to have our radar and our hearts geared in and focused on him. For me these days, I'm thinking about three things that have just happened to be in my life and, and on my plate, in my reflections, in my writing, in my ministry. I'm going to share each of them with you very quickly. The first is the Quaker John Woolman. If you read a book on spiritual Christian classics, John Woolman's, the journals of John Woolman will make its way into the top 10 in most people's lists historically in the Christian faith. John Woolman, you, you ask, who is that? John Woolman was a Quaker who lived between 1720 and 1776. He was a business person and a tailor by trade who became enormously successful, following in the steps of a successful family, and became wealthy. But in the Quaker way of worship, which is a way of worship without words and pure silence, listening to the voice of God together in community, it's a kind of a very different way of worship than we, most of us are used to. And John Woolman, in his journey as a Quaker, who, by the way, also, along with their silent worship, have a very strong tradition of social justice, marrying those two things uniquely together. John Woolman, over time, became inspired and discouraged about people in America holding slaves. He simply could not reconcile this reality. And so he set upon a self-appointed ministry funded by his own purse and rode thousands of miles up and down the east coast of the United States, visiting Quaker business people, farmers, and friends, staying with them, using their hospitality in order to share with them about how seriously wrong it was that one person should own another. One of the most unsung heroes in Christian history, and also one of the most influential, who is working on this issue about 60 or 70 years before the Civil War. When I think of John Woolman and his connecting of the sensitivity to the spirit, with his commitment to the truthfulness that slavery is wrong in God's eyes, I think about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. One of the most influential people in my life is a little old German woman named Ida Gilman. 
She was a member of the little Bible church that I grew up in in King City where my dad was the lead elder. And she was very different than the rest of the people in our church. I mean, our church was so small that you just couldn't escape it. But there were a few things about Mrs. Gilman. And one is that she hardly spoke a word of English. Another is that she was much beloved and admired by my parents, who would often repeat to them each other and to ourselves, Ida really loves the Lord, which was code in my Christian growing up culture for meaning that Ida was a serious disciple of Jesus Christ. On communion Sundays, I would separate myself because I wasn't ready for sharing in communion, still waiting to be baptized when the time is right, my mom told me, and I would sit at the back of the church and observe the communion service because at the end of the service, I had the job of picking up the cups, which was very exciting to a young boy and younger kids in our church. Mrs. Gilman was then, instead of sitting behind me at the back where she always sat, she was in front of me on those communion Sundays. And the passion and the tears and the deep focus of her worship is something that at that time in my life I had never experienced before and I actually have rarely seen since. She would mumble away in words that I didn't understand, but I am pretty sure that a lot of those words actually weren't German words. Ida Gilman was the first charismatic Christian that I knew. She was also, as a young woman, very outspoken in her native Germany against the rise of the Nazis. She had a prophetic standing in her little church in Germany before she emigrated with her young family to Canada. I was so fascinated by her and so motivated to know something about her heart that when it came the time to enter into high school and into university, I took German all through those years for one reason, because I knew that she had things to teach me. But even when I began to become more and more proficient in the German language, which she was very excited about, the language that she used in her very, very broken English is the language that is the deepest for me. You have to love Jesus. You have to love Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. She'd memorized these certain things in English when most of English was well beyond her. And the way she listened to preaching in English that she didn't understand, riveted, searching through the scriptures. The other things my parents would say is that Ida has a tremendous command on the word of God. When I think of Ida Gilman worshiping, I think of worshiping in spirit and in truth. A woman who is emotionally in tune with the presence of the Spirit in our decidedly non-charismatic little Bible chapel. And a woman who also prophetically knew that the rise of Hitler and the Nazis in Germany was not the will of God for the German people.
She combined spirit and truth. In a couple of weeks from now, I'm traveling to the state of Louisiana, way down in the deep south, to participate in leading a pastor's retreat for pastor inmates in the largest prison in the United States penitentiary system, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, known as Angola. I'm nervous because what I'm going to be doing is, you see, the pastor's retreat is for prison pastors who run and pastor over 30 churches inside of Angola prison. I was excited with the invitation, and as the days get closer, I am becoming more and more nervous about this opportunity, and I'll tell you one reason why. Because one of the things that I've heard about these prison pastors, many of whom are there for life, is that they know God in a way that most pastors outside of the prison do not know God. They love God and depend upon God in a way that most pastors outside of prison do not depend upon God. And so it's ironic in one sense that someone like me would be going to lead them in a retreat. But I'm so excited because of this renewed interest in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman to see once again, in addition to John Woolman, in addition to Ida Gilman, in addition to many of you and many of those that you love and admire, to see what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth in the most dire and broken and dark, in some cases violent, circumstances. When the woman at the well goes back to her community to say that she meets Jesus, the thing that she says is, I met a person who told me about myself, who told me everything that I have ever done. She experienced in spirit and in truth an encounter with Jesus, the Son of God. And she became a believer, and many other Samaritans became believers because of her encounter. To worship God means to worship him in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a long way to go to be a worship in spirit and truth community, but God is a loving, forgiving, compassionate God who is patient with us for the journey. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, amen.